Welcome to all of you today as we continue in our time of worship together. I am always grateful that we have this medium to share with each other, but especially in these cold, cold days in January, I am grateful that God gives us this opportunity to connect. So wherever you are today, I hope that you are warm and I hope that you are ready to jump into God's word and see what God has in store for us today. With that in mind, let me invite us to share together in a word of prayer. Almighty God, this day, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you were with us last week, you might remember that we explored the same scripture passage last week in the Gospel of John, specifically chapter 20, as we're going to explore today. And that's because there is so much in this passage to unpack that we divided into a part A for last week and a part B for this week. And as we're doing that, we're also seeking to explore and understand how we can know what is true based on a Christian worldview. So again, looked at part A last week, we're gonna jump into part B today. And as we get ready to do that, I wanna share with you an experience uh, that my family and I had this past summer. And that was, we got to go on a trip, specifically a vacation that we had been planning for years and years and years. It really was for us the trip of a lifetime. We got to go to Costa Rica and it was incredible in so many ways. We got to experience the ocean, we experienced a new culture with different kinds of food. We experienced incredible sights. Uh, we experienced one-lane roads traveling from one side of the country to the other. We experienced adventure and rest. We experienced new animals, things like a sloth and exotic birds and other animals in the rainforest. Uh, it really was an incredible, wonderful experience, one that we are so grateful for. One of the other things that we got to do that ranked at the top of my list as being one of my favorite things to do is that we also got to take a walk in the treetops. Uh, so yes, you heard me correctly on that. We took a walk in the treetops. And as the name might suggest, we got to walk along uh, the very tops of trees in the rainforest where we were. And I wanna show you just a couple pictures to give you kind of an idea of what that looked like for us and how it was that we were able to walk among the treetops. We were able to do that because there were suspended walkways on cables or on bridges, if you were, that were being held up. So these walkways were held in suspension with enough tension created be between giant poles uh, from one side of the gully to the other. And I wanna share with you that the reason that we were able to walk from one side to the other of these gullies along the treetops is because of the tension that there was in the walkway being held from one side of the gully to the other. We literally can only get from one side of the gully to the other because there was enough tension between the two the right amount of tension was needed to make that happen. Had there not been any tension in the walkway, it would have just hung down way too low and we could not have crossed. If there would have been too much tension, then the walkway would have snapped and broken and there also would not have been a way across. But with the right amount of tension, there was a way created forward to move across, to walk across where there was not a way before. 
So too little tension isn't gonna work. Too much tension isn't going to work, but the right amount of tension creates a way where there was no way before. Now I've lifted up this image to us before, but I experienced that firsthand when we were in Costa Rica this summer. And again, it was just beautiful and amazing to walk along the treetops. And I was so grateful that this way could be created where you wouldn't think a way could be created. I lift that up for us today because as we mentioned last week in the first half of this sermon, a Christian worldview tends to do the same thing. We said it this way last week, that in a Christian worldview, we usually find that apparently contradictory elements are held in a holy tension or in a right tension. And there's a tension between apparent opposites that serves a bit as a guide or as a clue for us on then what is a faithful or true Christian worldview. And the elements that we began to lift up last week that we talked about in relation to a faithful worldview were these elements of experience and thinking. And on the surface, those appear to be opposite types of things. What we experience, very personal feelings, emotions, versus thinking, which is very analytical, uh, using our minds in a critical way, trying to mix those things together. And what we discover when we look at the Gospel of John chapter 20 is that we find both of these elements, thinking, which we're going to look at today, and experience, which we looked at last week. So we unpacked last week you know, Mary's experience, a powerful one in the garden. I want to invite you to look with me today again in John chapter 20, and I want us to be very, very clear. Feelings, emotions, they are absolutely important, like we highlighted last week. But also, our minds are so important. God gave us minds to use. We are supposed to be a thinking people. We're supposed to analyze what comes before us. We're supposed to think about it and discern where God is in the midst of it. And so again, last week, Mary had this powerful experience in the garden along with Peter and with John. But look what else happens at the tomb. I want to invite you to look with me in John chapter 20, verse 6. Look what happens for Peter upon reaching the tomb. Then Simon Peter came along behind them and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Now, the word for Saul here in the Greek, it's an interesting word. It's technically the word theoreo. And as you might guess, just as I even say the Greek, it's where we get our word theorize from. And it means to think out, to reason out in a sustained way. It means discern. It means consider, ponder on. So Peter does more than have an experience when he gets to the tomb here today. He also thinks when he gets to the tomb. We're told that he sees the strips of linen lying there, but if we translate that a little bit more literally based on this Greek word, it actually says that what Peter is doing is he is thinking on these strips of linen. He's not just seeing them, he's, he's pondering them, he's, he's looking at them, he's, he's thinking about them. And why is it that Peter's thinking about these linens? What is it that's captured his attention that he's like, you know what, I, I need to think about this a little bit. I need to figure out what's going on here. He's thinking about this and looking at those strips of linen because the clothes are laid out beautifully, in order. 
And so what Peter's doing is he's kind of walking through what might be happening here and he's replaying the situation in his mind with Jesus and, and he's thinking, wait a minute, if Jesus was here and he was revived and he, and he jumped up, then wouldn't his clothes be all over the place? Uh, as if, you know, maybe he never was really dead and so they laid him down and he jumped back up. But had that been the case, his clothes would have been strewn everywhere. At the same time, Peter's like, well, maybe that's not the scenario. So maybe, maybe they stole, somebody stole the body of Jesus. But wait a minute, what thief would steal a body and then take the time to stop and come back and beautifully lay out and, and fold the linens in this nice way? Well, that doesn't seem to make sense either. There's a scholar named Michael Green, and he says, I love this. He says, the way the linens were lying there means they were still wrapped around, but empty, like a chrysalis after the butterfly is gone. And again, I think that's such beautiful imagery. So here's Peter thinking on this, pondering all this as he sees the linens lying there. And as he's doing all of this pondering, it's helping to lead him to a place of accepting the truth that the resurrection then is the only plausible explanation for why those linens are lying the way they are. So it's in the thinking, it's in the analyzing that leads Peter today to a place of confirming the truth and the reality of the resurrection. So in this way, faith might be more than thinking, but it certainly isn't less than thinking. Faith is not just an experience. It involves thinking and truth. It involves reasoning and discernment and using our analytical abilities. There are some people that will come along and say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe with all your heart. But can we really say that? Uh, there's other people who say, you, know, you need to live your truth and live it completely. But again, can we really say that? Because the Bible in many ways is a contradiction to those types of terms and those types of sentiments and mindsets that we often bring. Actually, what the Bible says is that it doesn't matter if you believe something with all your heart, as long as you believe in what you believe in is true. So consider this example with me for just a moment. Let's say that you will be super creative here today. <laughs> let's say you have Mr. A and Mr. B. Again, very creative names. And let's say that Mr. A has a very shaky ladder, but goes up very confidently because he believes very strongly. And Mr. B is rather scared to go up the ladder, his ladder, but it happens to be a very stable ladder. What's going to happen? You can begin to play that out in your mind. Mr. A might have a whole lot of confidence. He might say, I have all the faith in the world in this ladder, but he will still fall miserably if the ladder is shaky or rotten or broken or wobbly. He'll just end up falling and falling with confidence. Mr. B, on the other hand, might be scared and he might have doubt, but if he goes up the secure ladder, he's not going to fall. He will eventually make it to the top. It has nothing to do with the strength of the heart or the, even the conviction of the individuals. It has everything to do with the strength and the truth of the latter. So what matters most is not the strength of the faith, but the strength of the truth on which the faith then rests. After all, isn't there something about Jesus teaching faith as small as a mustard seed, having the ability to make a profound difference? 
So we embrace Jesus, not because he might be the most charismatic individual or the most entertaining individual or have the most flash. That tends to be what captures our imaginations in today's culture. But we embrace Jesus because Jesus is the one who's true. And faith calls us to embrace that which is true to then think on it and reflect on it and examine it and analyze it. Because the more we think on it, the more we'll realize the reality and the depth of the truth. When Peter got to that tomb, he could have imposed his views, his assumptions, his story in his own mind into what he was seeing before him. For example, he could have looked around and started to create a story based on the evidence that he saw that would fit his perception. So, for example, maybe he could have come to the tomb and he could have looked around and told himself, you know what, the only plausible explanation, the one that I think is most true, is that there must have been some thieves who came along and stole the body of Jesus. And okay, so there's this weird thing where all the linens are lying there and they're wrapped up neatly, but maybe those thieves were neat freaks. And maybe those thieves, anytime they went anywhere and stole anything, they would leave the place in nicer fashion, cleaned up more than when they first got there. So if they're gonna come, they're gonna steal something, but before they leave, they're gonna tidy up, they're gonna straighten things up. And maybe thought, Peter, that they call themselves something like the clean-up criminals or the straighten-up scoundrels or, you know, something like that. Now, the more we go down that road, it sounds really kind of ludicrous, right, to think about Peter doing this kind of thing. And it might sound crazy to us that Peter, when he got there, instead of accepting it, the facts and the reality and thinking on those, instead was imposing his own story, which looked more and more and more crazy and far-fetched. But the reality is you and I do this all the time. We like to listen to the stories and lift up the pieces of evidence that support our preferences rather than seeking out the truth, reflecting on the truth, analyzing for the truth. We like to lift up just the pieces that support my perception. In theological terms, this is something called isogesis. And I invite you wherever you are, just say that out loud, isogesis. And it means that we interpret the Bible by us reading our thoughts into the scripture passage, us reading our preferences and our meaning into the scripture passage to basically end up saying what we want instead of allowing the scripture passage to speak to us, instead of allowing the scripture passage to have authority over us and speak into our lives. The allowing of scripture to speak into our lives instead of us imposing our voice over scripture then is called exogesis. And that is where we receive the meaning from scripture in our lives. So eisogesis is where we insert our voice over scripture. Exogesis is when we let scripture speak for itself and speak authority into our lives to inform us and to correct us. The problem with us imposing our view to support our preferences and refusing to think critically about what is really true is that then eventually we will miss out on the truth altogether. Eisegesis leads away from truth. Exegesis leads us into truth, even as it self-corrects us. So look with me in John chapter 20, verses 8 to 10. This is what we hear. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where he was staying. 
So these disciples, they've just seen evidence of the truth. Jesus is alive. He is raised from the dead. This is what is true. They see evidence of this with the linens lying there the way that they are. We're even told in scripture they believed, at least for a minute. But then look what it says. They still did not understand. They still couldn't bring their way of thinking into the reality and the truth that was before them. They couldn't understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So almost immediately after believing, they can't get their minds around the reality and truth of the resurrection that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And even though they must have believed, they still now were thinking, even though they wanted to believe it, they wanted to get their minds there, they must have thought, well, he must still be dead because that was the preference that they brought with them. That was the, the most likely reality of what was going on, the most likely explanation to explain everything that was going on. It made more sense in their mind that he must have been stolen and taken away than to be raised from the dead. And the reason that that's probably true, that they thought he's still dead despite the evidence before them, is because scripture then tells us they just went back home. They went back to doing the very things that they had been doing when they thought Jesus was dead. They just can't get their minds around the truth of the evidence of pointing to the resurrection here today. I love the way Tim Keller makes an interesting point. He says, these disciples, they just could not get past their own grid of expectations. He says, these early disciples had a paradigm that served as a grid. So when they saw pieces that did not fit with that grid, they screened out the pieces that did not fit with their paradigm. And their paradigm was that despite Jesus saying he would die and he would rise again, and that, that was the truth, the only thing that they could assume was, well, he must be dead. And because he died, he is going to stay dead. No matter what else Jesus said, no matter what other evidence they see, case closed. Why? Because their thinking was centered around the limits of their expectations. Their thinking was centered around the limits of their perception of truth. And we do the exact same thing based on our perception of truth and our paradigms and what we want to conform to our understanding of the way the world works. We especially do this right now when it comes to politics. We tend to filter Jesus through our political viewpoint rather than vice versa. We iso Jesus into our politics rather than allowing the words of scripture to inform us and then apply that upon political views. And the result then is that each one of us ends up with our own worldview to some degree, rather than one common Christian worldview wherein together we live into God's truth. Today, I wanna to invite us to both experience Jesus exactly like we talked about last week and to embrace the love and the grace and the beauty that Jesus offers to us, but also to think on Jesus and reflect on Jesus until our way of thinking comes fully into alignment with Jesus's way of thinking and viewing the world. And this is not easy to do, but it's what allows us to experience grace and truth. It's what changes us personally and profoundly. It's what allows us to experience the intimacy of God and also the majesty of God.
And ultimately, it's what allows us to be transformed in the love of Jesus Christ. I shared with you last week that there's been times in my life where I've experienced the love of God in very personal and very intimate and very significant ways. But there's also been many times in my life where I've spent a lot of time thinking on Jesus and analyzing Jesus. And I believe God has brought about both of those in my life to allow me to to know Jesus better and to just even fall more deeply in love with Jesus. So many of you know that after high school, I went to Messiah College and Messiah was a great experience for me. The only thing I didn't love about Messiah, they didn't have football, uh, they had soccer, and uh, they were really good when I was there, but they've won 10 national championships since I graduated. So they got even better after I loved. I would have loved to have seen uh, them and, and those soccer teams and how great they did. Uh, but when I was at Messiah, it was a wonderful experience for me and I was a biblical studies major. So four years of thinking on, analyzing, studying the life of Jesus. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity to just dive into scripture during that time. And then many of you also know that after Messiah, I went to Duke. Um, I tend to mention Duke whenever I can with folks and especially with you all. I happen to love basketball. And so it was great to go to a school where there was such success on the basketball court. And many of you probably know Coach Mike Krzyzewski. This is his last year, uh, which is really kind of sad, but they're still doing great. Uh, They're still ranked in the top five right now. And so I'm really grateful for that opportunity to to just uh, celebrate that team. But even more so when I was there at the Divinity School, three more years to study with some of the best academic minds around and to hear their love of Jesus and how their thinking and using their mind drew them into a deeper walk with Christ. And then some of you know that just a few years ago, I was able to, uh, I was very blessed to complete a doctorate at Portland Seminary. And again, to have even more years, three more years of reading and studying and reflecting on the life of Christ and what that means for me and what that means for God's church and what that means for the day and the time in which we live. I had a number of people say to me, why did you do that? Why did you, after all that time, go and study even more with the doctorate? Was there some, you know, did you get a raise or did you get some, something tangible as a result of that? What was the practical benefit? And one of my biggest reasons, honestly, for the doctorate was just simply for a, a focused framework in which to study and analyze and think and be sharpened by others. Ultimately, it was so that I could grow even deeper in my walk and in my love with Jesus. Because we're called to, yes, experience, but we're also called to think on and ponder and reflect on the life of Christ. I believe from a purely analytical perspective, Christianity seems to be true in ways that so many other things are not. For example, we mentioned this before, but it just always strikes me. It's only the name of the Lord Jesus when taken in vain that is considered swearing. Nobody says, oh, Buddha, when they hit their thumb with a hammer. Nobody says, oh, Dalai Lama, when they hit their thumb with a hammer. Why is that? I believe because there's something unique and special and sacred about the name of Jesus, and it's not to be tossed around casually. And even in the the core of us as human beings, we, we get that. So only his name is the one taken in vain considered swearing. Or I'm struck by the fact that, that the Christian faith, it's so different from any other human story that we find, that the sheer originality of it. I don't think that human beings can make that up on their own. The, the concept of grace 
We don't find that anywhere other than in Christianity. The idea of being saved by a savior born out of wedlock, uh, who ended up dying on a cross, saving us through his grace and sacrifice on the cross rather than with military might, with none of the resources that you and I are accustomed to, none of the sources of power that you and I are accustomed to. That it just seems to be the logic of the gospel that I can't think of any other way of where it came about other than the fact it must be true. Few individuals were as good about thinking on the Christian faith and thinking as critically and analytically as C.S. Lewis, who lived a number of decades ago. And it just so happens that right now, the life group that I'm in, we're working our way through some of C.S. Lewis's work. And just last week, we read this passage from C.S. Lewis and talking about the implications of who Jesus is and is he true or not. And C.S. Lewis says this, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says Lewis, because a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Now, it seems to me obvious he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view, the truth, <laughs> that he was and is God. That kind of thinking, that kind of rationale, that, that just makes sense to me. Or one more, I love this powerful thought in regards to the reality of our world right now. There's a gentleman named Gideon Rosenblatt and he is summarizing a known atheist at the time. And this is what this individual had said. And remember, this is somebody not living into the Christian faith and yet this is their perception of what's happening in our world right now. He said, in earlier times, it was God who could define goodness, righteousness, and beauty. Today, however, those answers lie within us. Our feelings give meaning to our private lives, but also to our social and political processes. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The customer is always right. The voter knows best, and if it feels good, do it and think for yourself. Those are some of the main humanist credos. This is a thinking person, not even connected to faith. It's their response and observation to what they see happening in the world. They're understanding that increasingly, we tend to be driven by our emotions, our experiences, instead of stepping back and analyzing and thinking our way through things, especially thinking through a reality defined in faith in Jesus Christ. I would argue that the Apostles' Creed, <clears throat> which we are using as one of our guides through this series, it's pretty heavy on the thinking side. How does it begin? It begins, I believe in. It's a Christian manifesto. It's a laying out a belief of the mind and who we are. It's an assertion of what is true. So today, if you are someone who loves experiencing all the emotions of Jesus, but you rarely dig in, you rarely reflect, you rarely think concretely about Jesus, can I encourage you today and moving forward to find and commit to more engaged ways of thinking on and pondering in a disciplined way on the life of Christ? Do things like join uh, the, the year, reading the Bible in one year uh, journey that Pastor Janet and others are on. It's not too late to get to be a part of that. 
commit to joining a Bible study. Uh, Michael Glazier on staff and Dan Oftel and our church are going to be leading a Bible study soon. We invite you to be a part of that. Join a life group. Commit to a discipline. Journal. Start to ask yourself particular questions. Ask things like, is what I'm about to do based solely on what I think and feel and what I want? Or does this line up with the worldview of who Jesus is? And just be intentional to ask some of those questions and reflect on some of those questions. Ask yourself right now, what are two struggles I have with God right now? What are, what are two ways that I'm so grateful for who God is in life right now? I mean, just those kinds of things that help us to start to think through a little bit more carefully life in Jesus Christ. How is it we can commit together to thinking on and dwelling on and pondering on the truth of Christ? And then if you start to take what we talked about last week with experience and, and you mix it together today in holy tension with thinking on the faith, we start then to discover truth in a Christian worldview that leads and guides us in all that we do. And so what we start to see emerging based on what we talked about last week and this week are some of these types of elements in relation to a Christian worldview. That a Christian worldview is not based on either or thinking so much as bringing apparently contradictory elements being held together in holy tension. Also with the Christian worldview, it's easy to think that some people are thinking people and other people are feeling people. Not so in a Christian worldview. We understand all of us have elements of experiencing God and all of us have elements of thinking on God, using our heads and our minds towards God. And then it's easy in general to think that Everybody can live their own truth, but what we're understanding in a Christian worldview is that truth must first of all be based on a primacy of Scripture, and that all of us, through our experiences and through thinking, begin to understand what is really true, not just based on what we think is true. And as we start to live into this concept of a Christian worldview, here's what we discover. We discover that experience and the truth are not in contrast to one another, but rather they complement one another. They start to anchor us again in the primacy of scripture and give us a worldview through which we can understand truth no matter what any of the voices around us in our culture, no matter how loud they are, might be saying to us. And so today, church, I wanna invite us not just to live into our perception of truth, what we think truth is, I wanna invite us to reflect on God's truth, to embrace the experience and love of Christ, but also to think our way through what is it God is calling us into and how to live in light of his truth in our world at this time. And what is it then that we believe in this Christian worldview? I wanna invite you wherever you are to share these words with me, to say them out loud as we share together in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.